grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. In our gospel text, Jesus sends a kind of delegation to Jesus. Like the Magi, the wise man who sought out Jesus at his birth, John's disciples are going to confirm once again who Jesus is and ask him a very pointed question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I'd say, at least from my perspective, that's a little bit of an uncomfortable dialogue. St. Luke records that in the same hour, John's disciples asked Jesus to verify his messiahship, Jesus is healing many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and that the blind were bestowed with sight. You definitely get the impression that Jesus is saying, judge for yourselves what you see. Do you think that I could do any of this if it were not I who was the Messiah, who is the Messiah? And of course, that's exactly what Jesus relays. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard, adding, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And the Messiah's resume, they are to relate to John uh, of Jesus' work, is nothing short of miraculous. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, deaf are hearing, but also the dead are raised to life, and the poor are having the good news, the gospel, preached to them. All these things, Jesus adds a blessing to it, saying a blessing to it that uh, for any who are not offended by him. And that, that last part is an is a equally uncomfortable statement. It's actually even a bit of an odd final statement that Jesus would say. Because who would be offended by miracles? What is offensive about what they would be seeing and hearing Jesus do? How could healings and resurrections or the gospel be appalling to anyone? But it must have been scandalous to some because Jesus tacks it on to what they are to relay back to John the Baptist. It's then in the next few verses that Jesus clarifies just who it is that would be offended. He gives a sort of callback to those who first met John uh, with disdain at the Jordan River and how they already despised Jesus even before meeting him. And if you may remember it, John came to prepare the way before the Messiah's coming. He brought people into a baptism of repentance and called out the naysayers for being a brood of vipers, hypocrites, to their calling as the spiritual caretakers of Israel. So Jesus reflects on the beginning of John's ministry in order to force a reflection on his own ministry. So he asks those listening some rhetorical questions about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in soft clothing? By these questions, Jesus is announcing the end of John's prophetic mission. It is as if Jesus is saying, you've heard who and what John preached in the wilderness, 
And now, in his, and now his own disciples have their confirmation that I am the one who has come and that there is not another coming. If John is unwavering in his preaching and a man without the comforts of privileged persuasion, how much more am I of whom he has prepared the way? This is why Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, greater than John. Jesus is referring to himself. But it adds yet another curve to the story. How is Jesus greater than John and yet also least in the kingdom of God? So what we have before us here are are three cohesive yet quirky components to today's gospel. John's questioning of Jesus' messiahship, the offensive nature of Jesus' miracles, and finally, Jesus' greatness as the one who is least in the kingdom of God. Now, if there's something practical to be gained today from the message for our day-to-day life of being Christians, I'd say it comes out of John's doubts of who Jesus is. John is considered the final prophet of the Old Testament and the first of the New Testament era. He's the one who prepares the way for Jesus, boldly proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Yet his doubts assault him. His doubts assault his confidence in Jesus. Locked away in prison now for his preaching, he only has time to second-guess his ministry and preparations for Jesus. John's doubts are not unlike ours as Christians, especially when we've committed ourselves to chastity and virtues that some professors or maybe even friends would scoff at. Our beliefs often contradict mainstream beliefs, and even though history and science are not against us, it often can seem that way that we're on the wrong side of this or that, of history or science or whatever is spoken of by pundits. It's difficult not to think this way. We have naysayers all around us, and also our brains and our uh, urges, uh, they, they violate us. They, they are difficult to navigate around as well. The secular person's morality is a mood swing, but ours is absolute truth. And this is why this distinction is important. For us, the shame of sin is not easy to overcome by accepting or dismissing it out of hand as our counterparts do. And it's tempting to accept sin or dismiss sin because that does make us feel better, at least in the short term. But what is ultimately missed out upon by doing this sweeping of the, under the rug is grace. The love of God that is given to us in an undeserved manner. Absolute forgiveness. Not the feeling of forgiveness that comes again with the sweeping under the rug of our, of our sins. But real, unconditional love and forgiveness from our God. And believe it or not, it's that very thing that causes the offense. That's the scandal of the gospel that Jesus preaches, that Jesus loves sinners. Oddly, the religious leader's backlash to Jesus then is the secular backlash to Jesus today. 
Jesus' religion of grace is unacceptable to people who do not want to be held accountable to sin, who do not want to repent. The miracles, the raising of the dead, and the preaching of the gospel, if true, means no one can enter into God's good graces on their own. If good works are just for our neighbor and not for God's sake, that means God's grace, God's favor, isn't for sale. Same goes with the unbelieving. If our accomplishments and good works don't outweigh our bad choices, then all we have are blurred lines between good people and bad people, overconfident people and anxious people. So then Jesus' ministry is a bit confusing to both the religious and non-religious hypocrites, unbelievers. The clarity to all of our confusion comes with Jesus himself, with his advent into the world, and by his, uh, by his coming to among us who are the worldly of people. It isn't that Jesus lords over us, dangling our sins in our face, calling us to repent just for repentance sake. Rather, Jesus lords over us by becoming one of us. Jesus counts himself as least in the kingdom of God by his suffering, by his death, in order to elevate us into the kingdom of God, a place that we do not deserve to be. We get there not by merit, but by grace. Jesus meets the doubts of John and us and the offense of the world by the greatness of his sacrifice for our sin. Jesus becomes least, trading his perfection with all of our imperfections, all of our sins, so that by his blood shed upon the cross, our blood, our flesh, our lives are redeemed. Somehow in the world where truth is relative, we find people everywhere yearning for justice. The contradiction is that for there to be justice, it is not logical that the very principles of good or bad be decided by cultural mood swings. Something absolute, true, is foundational for justice. Jesus is both the just and the justifier. Jesus shows us that since the beginning, he has been the foundation of the world. Among the Holy Trinity, he is our he is a, a, a creator. And alone he was sent to be our Messiah, the redeeming Savior of the world. He was the one foretold by the prophets. He came to his people on earth, and there is not another who is to come. John is confirmed in his beliefs of who Jesus is. In Jesus, your doubts, your offense, all your sins are laid aside. And he comes and he picks them up for you. He empties repentance from your lips by filling your heart with his grace. So then, as Christians, when we look to Christmas drawing near, remember that his kingdom is coming again soon. And have no doubt, you have a place there with him. Amen.